We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. We're back. This is We The Aliens Podcast. I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. It's been a little bit. It's so great to be back with you. Thank you for tuning in. Quick housekeeping. We have a new format. Starting this week, there will be two half-hour episodes every week. One guest, two episodes. On Mondays, we will talk about my guest's immigration experience. And on Thursdays, we'll talk about what they brought here, their area of expertise. Science, politics, arts, business, whatever they're amazing at. I hope you guys like this new format, and we'll see how that goes in the next few months. In other news, I have resurrected my Ask Your Friendly Russian thingy, and it currently lives on TikTok. I know you think it's all dancing teenagers, but really, it's not. Uh, you can find me at Kapuster Official. I'll put a link in the show notes. Come help me fight communists and right-wing trolls. It's fun. Okay, I'm not sure if I mentioned it here, but we are loading all of the episodes onto YouTube now. So you can find With the Aliens Podcast channel on YouTube and listen there and share with your friends who don't do podcasts properly. You can find a link in the show notes and on our website. And finally, we have a brand new spring merch design in our store. I personally love it, and I hope you like it too. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Okay, done with housekeeping. I have an amazing guest this week. Ariel Cohen is a political analyst and strategist, writer, and commentator. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council Eurasia Center. He's also a senior fellow at the International Tax and Investment Center. Dr. Cohen consults for Fortune 500 companies and international law firms. You've seen him on TV. You've heard him on the radio. You've read his columns in Forbes and other publications. He is a leading expert on Eastern Europe and the Middle East and the author of the book, Russian Imperialism, Development and Crisis, that you can find on Amazon. And today we talk about the part of his journey that he doesn't talk often about. We talk about how he and his family escaped Soviet Union. Ariel's family were refuseniks. What is a refusenik? Here's a little bit of context. In the Soviet Union, most basic human rights were limited. There was no freedom of speech, no freedom of religion, there was no elections, no private property. Take any human right that you deem essential and basic, and it was restricted. Specifically, freedom of travel was limited for example, in order to go out of the country, you needed to get an exit visa. Most of the time, you could only travel to Eastern Bloc countries, those with friendly regimes, Yugoslavia, Poland, maybe if you're lucky, East Germany. Travel to the West was even more restricted. Say you're a scientist going to a conference or an actor going to a film festival. If you've been a good communist, you will probably be allowed to attend but you will be accompanied by a KGB officer at all times who would be making sure 
that you remain a good communist and don't succumb to the vices of the capitalist society. Now, if you happen to be born Jewish, things were even worse because Soviet Union had the system of state anti-Semitism. Jews were systematically restricted from attending universities, getting good jobs. Propaganda called anyone who practiced Judaism an enemy of the people. USSR broke diplomatic relations with Israel in the 60s, and anyone who wanted to move to Israel was deemed a traitor. Pretty much anyone who wanted to leave Soviet Union was seen as a traitor. So Soviet Union actively prevented people from leaving. And this is how this word came about, refusenik, which is the English version of Russian atkaznik from the word atkaz, refusal, refusal to allow to leave. Refuseniks were people, predominantly Jewish, who were simply not allowed to go. But the Soviet economy wasn't doing so great in the 70s and 80s, and that gave the West and human rights activists in the West some leverage. And so over the course of the many years under international pressure, USSR would slowly allow people out. This was a little bit of general context, and here's Ariel's story of getting out of Soviet Union and coming to the U.S. When did you come to the U.S., and where did you come here from? I came to the U.S. in the summer of 1987. Uh, I was 28 at the time, and I was very happy because I was accepted to the graduate school at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. And at the time, it was Tufts and Harvard. Um, so I came here to study to get my graduate degree. And then it, one thing led to another. I stayed for the P. They invited me to stay for the PhD. And then I got a pretty good job in Washington, D.C. And the rest of this history, as they say. Right. But we should start the journey uh, in 1973 in Saratov, as an eight-year-old, my parents brought me into this uh, snowed, frozen, big industrial city. I've never been to Toledo, Ohio, but I always said it's like Toledo, Ohio, it, but in Russia, you know, Rust Belt uh, and military industrial complex. And I never liked it. Uh, I wasn't born there and I never felt a part of Saratov. I was born in the Crimea, uh, in Yalta, currently occupied. But why did you have to move? Uh, my dad uh, is, was a geologist. Um, he's still alive. He's 91. And um, he uh, couldn't get a job uh, in Ukraine. He worked in Ukraine. He wanted a different job. And uh, the only two places that offered him a job, uh, one was Tumen, which is a big oil and gas uh, province, a basin, probably one of the largest in the world. Uh, and the other one, Saratov. But Tumin, which I visited maybe 10, 12 years ago, still, I'm not making it up, has bears coming to the suburbs of the, of the city. Uh, it's in the woods. Yeah, it's in Siberia. Yeah, that, well, it's super cold. Uh, this was too much for him. So he chose Saratov, which, you know, had a theater and the philharmonic and things like that. Civilization. Um, but I detested it. Uh, the situation at home was absolutely nasty. Um, it was very interesting because I went through the thing that when we first got there in 68, um, people did not know who Jews are, what Jews are. They said, Yevrei, mm -hmm. a Jew, what is it? And then very quickly, because of the Soviet propaganda, 
they discovered that Jews are bad people and you get encountered with pretty nasty, uh, virulent, physical anti-Semitism. And really? I cannot count how many times I had to end up in fisticuffs and worse. Um, mm -hmm. Because people called me a yid, people called me a kike, people you know, tried to hit me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But that started in the kindergarten in Yalta, in the Crimea. That was part of Ukraine. Uh, Anti-Semitism there was extremely uh, indigenous and uh, well rooted, uh, and this is one of the formative experiences you get growing up in a place like that. That was my Jewish privilege. There was certain school that didn't take the Jews. Period. I was always interested in things like foreign affairs and national security. No freaking way. I mean, oh I, no, <laughs> I was all set to go into biology and, you know, I dreamed to be a, like Conrad Lorenz, the uh, animal psychologist and whatnot, because I knew that stuff I was really interested in. There's no freaking way I could, could get into. Wow. And so how did you end up in Israel? Just for our audience, at the time, it was essentially impossible to leave Soviet Union. <sighs> yes and no. Um, okay. For people who did not have any kind of interesting diplomas or education, they could leave. If you were a butcher or if you were even a nurse, they would let you go. Hmm. Uh, and it also depended where. And one of the big strategic mistakes, because what I became is sort of a foreign policy, international affairs guy, and you quickly think, start training yourself to think about strategies. This was totally anti-strategic, what my dad did because we lived in what was called the closed city. Mm -hmm. And the closed city is a city that the idea of a classified state secret regime applied not just to individuals like my father, but to the whole freaking city. And they would not let foreigners, for example, to visit. When a need arose later on for us to get in contact with foreigners to get help to get out of Russia, we had to travel to Moscow. Well, I talked to people in Yalta, in my birthplace. But my father applied to exit with his family to leave, to emigrate to Israel. And he, he had an active security clearance. Now, for those of our viewers who don't know that, if you're an American scientist and you have some kind of a security clearance, my, my father didn't have a top clearance, he was a geologist. You can travel wherever you want in the world. In the, in the most of the Western countries, as far as I know, unless you're working for the military, unless you're working for intelligence, there's no limitation on your freedom of travel. In the Soviet Union at the time, there was, and even somebody, you know, PhD, geology, oil and gas. As a kid at that time, I said, Dan, what secrets do you know? You're all about, you know, drilling uh, for gas and oil. And he said, well, maybe I know the coordinates of those drilling rigs. And I said, Dad, they're like 30 yard high. They're huge. Can Americans see them from space with the satellites? I said, of course they can. So the classified access to information was garbage. And then they said, oh, and your mom, my mom, now deceased, uh, has a security clearance too because she works in a medical lab in a industrial uh, plant that works for the military industrial complex, which was probably more than half of the uh, factories in Sarata. So she was there and she said, wow, this is amazing. I spend my days looking into microscope at people, blood samples and urine samples and excuse me, feces samples. And they still would classify that. 
Wow. Just to set up the frame, explain why did we want to leave? First and foremost was because my father's father, my grandfather, David Kogan, was executed by Stalin. Uh, he was a communist. He was an editor of a newspaper. That was his last job. And before that, he was sort of mid-range apparatchik. He was mid-range party functionary and probably a true believer. Um, in 1938, he was arrested and soon after, in the fall of 38, was executed. I have a file, NKVD, a secret police file, including five confessions written one after another with deteriorating handwriting. Of course, my father didn't know about the confessions. I got the confessions wow. not too long ago from the KGB of Kazakhstan, from the secret police of Kazakhstan. What did they uh, accuse him of? Treason, like everybody. Classic, yeah. Uh, again, for those who are not following Russian Soviet history, about 700,000 people were executed by Stalin in 37, 38 alone. So my grandfather got caught in that meat grinder. So my father grew up with this tremendous trauma of losing his father at the age of nine, of hating the regime, and becoming a Zionist, sort of through his own self-educating process, where he wanted to go was Israel. And that's where we ended up. I do want to go back a little bit and... Um... So how did you manage to get out of Soviet Union? Okay, so um, my father was turned down. Uh, I think personally, in the retrospect, it's always 2020 vision is the best, uh, that he should have quit his job that had the- um, Clearance. Uh, security clearance and moved us to another town from which people were leaving already on a regular basis. But knowing my father, knowing who he is, he went, as they say, with the head against the wall. He banged his head against the wall. He decided, you know, screw it. I'm going to do it, you know, by hook or by crook. And it was by crook because they wouldn't let him. And then he had to quit his job. We went, the whole family went through a number of denunciation meetings where people literally would stand up and scream at you. In that case, my parents and me at school. Traitor, traitor, you're betraying the motherland, you're betraying the Soviet Union. You look surprised. You never heard about that? No, no. Really? I've never heard about that kind of stuff. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But a lot of people went through that. What was interesting for me is my schoolmates, uh, I was in ninth grade and then 10th grade. That's the very last two years. They turned against me. Not only they turned against me, they were organized by the party secretary of the school. This is a pretty good school. This is a sciences school. And these kids, some of them from pretty good, good families, meaning high-level officials or scientists, they turned against me. They, they had to stand up. They had to. They were expected to stand up and say, Kogan, which is the Russian version of my name, is a traitor. He wants to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, he wants to you know, be in the capitalist West. You know, we hate him. You know, and then when they dragged me in front of the whole school of hundreds of people, you know, the school assembly, right? So 300 people, uh, they said, renounce your parents in front of us now. And oh my God. Yeah, I'm 15. You know, this is not, this is not a fully formed personality. I said, I'm not an informer against my parents. I'm not going to do any such thing. And that was, that was it. I mean, yeah. So when, when the pressure didn't work, the same people who were organizing it, there was a guy who was in charge of the military training. Every school in, in the Soviet Union then and now, by the way, Putin brought it back, has 
um, like ROTC. So the guy who was in charge of military training, a colonel, and the deputy director of the school, the director of the school, the school principal, organized guys to beat me up. So the first time a guy who was like about a head taller than me tried to attack me in the school bathroom. I wasn't trained in martial arts, but my dad taught me a couple of things and whatnot. So I managed to raise my thumbs into his mouth and, and wow. that took care of that. Then a couple of guys tried to you know, do something. I hit one of them and ran away. Then four guys decided that they're going to do it outside of the school. And I said, okay, okay, but it has to be fair. It has to be fair. So it's one-on-one. -on -one. I'll fight all of you, but one-on-one, -on -one, not... So the kids, right? The 15-year-olds. So, okay. So the first one, who is now my Facebook friend and lives in Israel, uh, Misha Kaminetsky. Again, with no martial training, I managed to pivot and hit him with uh, the heel of my shoe. It, they had platform shoes. I, I don't know if you are old enough to know what platform yeah. shoes are. So I had this big-ass heel. heel <laughs> and I hit him straight in the face. I came home. My whole... Uh, shirt was covered in blood oh and my God. mom almost fainted said don't worry mom it's not my blood so the left so they kept escalating this is where you learn about what escalation domination is they had the escalation ladder domination you learn it in strategic studies so they got seven guys who were two years older a year older than me and at that age that age difference is huge very meaningful yeah so the seven guys dragged me out of school and just kicked the shit out of me all i needed to do was to stand there with my um, arms covering my private parts that they were trying to kick. And a friend of mine sort of managed to drag me away and that was the end. So I got pretty depressed. Before we went to Israel, um, I probably had something of a depression setting up and my um, um, academic performance dropped tremendously. I couldn't concentrate. And- I can um, imagine. Yeah, I thought, I thought we won't get out. I had two functions that family. So my father had to quit that job with security clearance. He became a welder in the construction site. So, you know, the Jewish guy, 40-something, learning to weld. He got asthma. He started drinking. It wasn't fun. Yeah, he, I mean, he's still alive, so he didn't drink himself to death. Yeah. He got diabetes. I mean, this, this was not good. So I had two functions. One, I had to support the family. So I created a little distribution network for mohair wool because mohair wool was not available. A lot of consumer goods were not available. So mohair wool was not available. So I found three women who would sell it in little kiosks. And we got a little bit of um, support. We were getting 100 to $120 for three months. So about $40 a month from American Jews. And with that money, I would go to Moscow. I would purchase the mohair wool, distribute it. It was more money from that operation than my parents, a PhD and a medical doctor were making combined. So that was like $400 uh, rubles a month. Which is livable. Which was quite livable. It was better than what we had before. Yeah. So that was one thing. And the second thing was because of my English was better than my parents, I had to do a lot of communication. So I communicated with a guy who was a member of the British Parliament. And then I met a woman um, who was a pensioner already at the time, wonderful Dutch Christian woman, Gertrude van Nederveen. I met her at a bench in Yalta. I said, hi. Uh, she said, who are you? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm basically practicing my English, but we are trying to leave the Soviet Union. We're Jewish, blah, blah, blah. We're trying to go to Israel. And she, as a Christian, was amazed by that because the prophecy of in gathering of the Jews. 
Yes. And this woman who was an elementary school teacher with no particular wealth, lived with her husband in probably a one or two bedroom apartment in The Hague, would come and visit us like three times and bring this stuff, go to London, liaise with people in the British Parliament and with others and smuggle letters for us and was an amazing, amazing person. So what wherever she British... is, I hope she's in paradise. What's yeah. that? What did, what did British Parliament have to do with the, with the whole The thing? British Parliament had uh, a number of ventures, including intervening with the visiting Soviet uh, dignitaries. Uh, Boris Panamaryov, who was um, a secretary of the Central Committee once came, and they would give, and others would give them the list of the refusals. So that was a standard operating procedure. A Soviet Puba, a senior Soviet official comes, they talk about whatever they talk about, uh, grain purchases, the Soviet Union could not feed itself, and um, they were buying, among other things, grain in the United States, Argentina, Canada, etc. And they would get a list of the Soviet refusing the Jews were trying to leave. And our job, my job, my parents' job was to get us on that list. So you would travel to Moscow, meet with the refuseniks, and have those relationships so that they would put you on the list. So as a teenager, as a kid, you know, you type it on a mechanical typewriter, our story, and then pass on mm. messages for my father's uh, colleagues, the geologists who would bring it up and uh, scientific conference to say, well, there's a scientist, you don't let him out. So it's it's a public uh, shame and blame campaign on behalf of these refuseniks. And that's how they let us out. They let us out, I think, before some kind of an Olympics, 76, that was, I think, an Olympics, that they didn't want noise about it. There was a Communist Party Congress, and they just, they would let these people out bit by bit. And I was very lucky because I was already in the last school before graduation of high school. And if we wouldn't get out soon, they would draft me because with that kind of background, they would not take me to any college, any college uh, hmm. in the Soviet Union. And if they drafted me, I may have ended up in Afghanistan and you know what happened to people in Afghanistan, they got killed. So lucky me popped out of there with my family, finished high school in Israel, and then served in the Israeli army and in the finished the law school in Israel, got accepted to the Israeli bar and then decided to leave it all go to us to do what i really like to do and study what i like to study so so it sort of worked out wow what a story that's i'm i'm so grateful that you shared it i mean i knew i heard about refuseniks you know not being able to leave and i heard of course about anti-semitism and i was very fortunate never to really experience it in russia but yeah i, I I had no idea about those public shaming campaigns and- Oh, that, that was very typical. We knew actually a girl, we basically took her in, uh, Mara Weissmull. Uh, Mara's story was that they worked on Mara. Mara's parents, her, her father was in the camps, wanted to leave, uh, was tra very traumatized um, in the camps and uh, had a huge stutter and whatnot. And the girl was about 15 year old when they were, they got their permission to leave. And there was a lot of pressure on Mara to stay. And the poor thing stayed and they put her, you know, as a showpiece to talk uh, in um, meetings, you know, in schools and whatnot. I denounced my parents. They went to a Zionist, you know, place. And I love the Soviet power. I, you know, I stay here. She was given uh, a studio apartment. And I think they promised her to get her into college. And about a year later, she shows up at our doorstep and said, I miss my mom. 
Can you help me? Oh my God. And we took her in and she said, okay, what do I need to do? I, I have to go to my parents. I, I want my parents. I want my brother. Her brother, uh, Samuel, you know, was a buddy of mine. Anyway, uh, they let her out in the end. Oh my God. Uh, she is God. in Israel. She's happily married, kids, what have you. Yeah. So that was a big, uh, that was a big thing with uh, the Weissman family and just an example of how they put pressure on teenagers to stay in the Soviet Union, denounce their parents. There were articles in the newspapers about the big hero, um, Mara Weissman, who you know, gave up her family, renounced her parents because they want they were going to Israel. Didn't such work. Such a brutal, such a, such a, I don't even know how to call it, like extremely immoral thing to destroy families like that. Yeah, but if you think about what else is going on in the world, this is an archetypical, this is how archetypical totalitarian regime uh, works. Uh, the Uyghurs in China, when people intervene, when the governments intervene with what people think, how they believe, what do they say, can they travel or not, limitations on travel. In China, for example, if your uh, social score, you know, they have a social score yeah. of, yeah, if you were nasty to an official, if you were late to work, if you posted something against the Communist Party on the internet, your score goes down. At some point, you cannot travel. They won't sell you a train or bus or airplane ticket. That is limitation of your freedom of travel. Uh, same thing with work. If you're not a reliable cadre, you will not get certain jobs. This is how a totalitarian state today North Korea, China, Cuba, Venezuela, etc. And unfortunately, the dynamic in Russia is getting back after a hiatus since the collapse of the Soviet Union. You know, we just mark the 90th uh, birthday of Boris Yeltsin, of the first president of post-communist Russia. And a lot of people hate him. A lot of things became very difficult in Russia. Yeah. The transition post-communist, the post-communist transition. In Russia, it was very hard economically to a lot well, of people. The go-to, the go-to go slogan of the current propaganda is, "Well, do you want to go back to the '90s? Do you want back right or the, the, yeah. the cursed 1990s? Why it's a cursed? Why is it a cursed when you became uh, capable of you, you were allowed to by the state to go to Turkey on vacation, to go to Paris to see Paris, to study abroad, to worship in a church of your choice?" But this is increasing. So now people can go to jail for posting a joke, literally. I mean, these days, Sergei Smirnov, the journalist, is uh, taken into administ administrative custody for 25 days uh, for reposting his own joke uh, on the internet that contained information about the Navalny meeting. So Russia is going back into that direction. And uh, this is very dangerous, uh, an ideology that starts to use state tools to dictate how people think, punish them for wrong, think. Uh, and yeah, we see a lot of garbage in the internet. We see a lot of conspiracy theories. We see a lot of really crazy, nasty, weird, you know, the anti-vaxxers, the racists, uh, the, you know, what is it, fight the steel, whatever, the, the, the myth about the, the Trump victory being stolen. Oh, yeah, all, the, that, yeah. all that is untrue, right? Yeah. But once you start blocking people's freedom to express their opinions. In my book, in my life experience, um, in my grandfather's life experience, getting a bullet in the back of your head, 
this is a slippery slope. This is very, very dangerous. I do want to um, ask you, when you came to Israel, did you, how did you feel? I, feel? I felt wonderful because I fully, first of all, the way my parents raised me, I wanted out. I wanted out of the Soviet Union. I wanted to go to Israel. I didn't have any problems going to Israel. It, it was a big deal. But most, mostly, or, or most of all, I didn't want to stay in the Soviet Union. I understood that this system of incessant pressure in school, at work, the compulsory membership in the communist youth organization, the compulsory membership in the party if you want to have uh, a career, um, the state that is controlling everything, it's controlling your livelihood. Uh, you cannot travel abroad. You cannot read what you want. I am, by the age of 15, 16, I was reading the Samizdat, the um, self-published underground literature. I was listening to the Voice of America and the BBC Radio Liberty. Uh, so uh, in terms of my education, I, I was well on track to become an anti-communist and to understand what the Soviet uh, regime was. I was very happy to be in Israel. Uh, I was happy to study Hebrew. It was a much better experience. When did America become the dream? The education was a dream. Um, I worked for Radio Liberty, Radio for Europe, uh, audience research. So I worked since I got out for a big American operation. Um, and then I became a journalist. So I, I had contacts with the uh, U.S. Agency for um, Information, U.S. Information Agency, USIA, that was later collapsed into the State Department. So I understood that the quality of education I can get in the United States is much higher. Uh, and also, there are certain things you can study in Israel, no problem. Medicine, engineering, I tried to study biology. I understood that I had some serious issues with things like chemical, uh, physical chemistry and calculus. That was not my thing. Uh, in any event. I can relate. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I pretty much um, had uh, a visit in 1984 at Columbia University, and the professor I uh, talked to, the associate dean, turned out to be a Trotskyite, and he told me, oh, you come from the Soviet Union, you cannot study the Soviet Union. So me, with my Russian native and my huge amount of reading that I've done by then, I could not study the Soviet Union. Why? Because you're biased, he said. And... You will not be allowed to go there to do research in the archives. Well, guess what? Um, so this was 84 by 1992. I was in Moscow in presidential archives doing some very interesting research for my PhD, going over the protocols of the Politburo and the Central Committee that documented how the Soviet Union was collapsing under Gorbachev. In fact, it was highly classified. It was declassified for the court proceedings against the Communist Party. It could be reclassified again. I don't know. Yeah, but is. so much for that professor's pushback on me not becoming uh, an academically trained American, Soviet, and Russian uh, affairs uh, specialist. I did defend my PhD in 93, writing about the collapse of the Soviet Union, including these fascinating materials from the presidential archives. So when you came to the U.S., the plan was to get the degree. And did you plan on staying or did you want to go back to Israel? What was the hope? Well, the uh, plan was uh, to finish the degree and possibly go back to Israel, sort of get back into the law, um, which I didn't like. 
uh, and uh, maybe have some political career or something like that, or diplomatic career. Um, but I got an offer to um, uh, pursue my PhD from the Fletcher School, um, free ride. They, you know, waived all the fees. Um, and then um, while I was working on my PhD, uh, I taught college, but um, one of the big think tanks reached out to me. Mm. Well, they reached out to my mentor at the Fletcher School, uh, Professor Dick Schultz, and he recommended me, mm-hmm. for which I'm eternally grateful for him. And uh, I was running a project in, I think, like six republics. The Soviet Union just collapsed. This was my last big research project for the radios. What was the most challenging thing for you about coming to America? And how did you overcome it? Gaining weight. Uh, I didn't overcome it. And, uh, yep, uh, I think... Physical weight? Yeah, 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 physical weight. Uh, I think I gained, like over 40 pounds. Oh my God. You get to the land of, of uh, the limitless double cheeseburger and it'll do it. Took a while to drop that weight and it's still a struggle. I, I'm being facetious. I mean, that's probably not uh, the main problem. Uh, another problem, I think a more existential problem is that to me, uh, coming uh, after being a refusenik, um, after being an anti-communist, uh, living through the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a goal that I worked with an organization that was dedicated to it. That was Radio Liberty. I was on the research side. Uh, and I wrote a book about the collapse. I saw the collapse of the Soviet Union as a positive development, both for the people of the so- people's plural of the Soviet Union, because I was exposed to a lot of narratives of the uh, Baltic uh, nationalists, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Ukrainians, uh, Georgians, uh, Central Asians, etc. To me, it was a positive thing. To me, as I said in the book, uh, the challenge for Russia is whether it becomes a democratic nation state or rebuilds the empire. And I would add to that now, does it stay democratic? Warts and all difficulties of being democratic under Yeltsin. Or it reverts to its authoritarian roots? Both me and a bunch of my colleagues that have the background in Russian history agree that what Russia became is more like a Tsarist empire, not a communist ultra totalitarian state. It's less of a North Korea, more Russia under Alexander III or Nicholas II, where there's a lot of oppression, but still people could leave. People were engaged in certain amount of opposition activity. Now you see, uh, it comes with a higher and higher cost if you engage in opposition activity. And um, I think it's uh, unfortunate from the point of view of a Russian elite, of, of people who value uh, things like freedom, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of political engagement, um, that um, Russia did not manage to continue this westward vector, the, the, the direction we thought it was right. going and so how was that connected to you? Oh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, did, I didn't overcome it. I didn't overcome it. So just like gaining weight, this challenge became uh, unsurmountable. And that is that I came to America seeing it as a shining city on the hill, as a place that has no uh, deficits or no dark side. And I think a lot of immigrants come that way. Yes. And uh, to me, the era of uh, demise of communism, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, uh, was sort of um, 
the um, epitome of the hopes that I had. And then I come to America, I study here, and I'm totally um, inured. I'm, I'm not looking at the, the problems that we have here, including things like racism. I deny to myself and to others that there is an element of racism in the U.S. society, which it is. Um, uh, and I'm not uh, a lefty. I, I consider myself a moderate. I'm against defunding police as a policy. Mm -hmm. But when police behaves in, na in nasty ways, it needs to be retrained, you know, brought within the parameters. There need to be controls. Uh, controls. And also there are police practices all over the world that sometimes in the U.S. we're just being way too harsh. What I'm trying to say is that being an immigrant, uh, being from a communist society, um, I was um, really not paying attention to real challenges that were brewing here. And now these issues are bursting out in the open. And I need to wrap my brain around what I'm looking at. And as I said before, and you said, the, the extremes meet at some point. The extremes are not viable. We need to look for, again, excuses the cliche, we need to search for common ground. And yes, Republicans and Democrats need to work together. Unfortunately, even after the defeat of a very unsuccessful, in many ways, disgusting president, uh, I do not see the commitment from the Democrat side now to work with the Republicans. And the challenge of how you find the center in today's America probably is a huge, huge challenge, um, maybe as difficult as uh, the defeat of communism used to be. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something new. Tune in on Thursday for part two of my conversation with Ariel. We will be talking about Russia and why you want to keep an eye on U.S.-Russian relations, even though Soviet Union is no longer and the Cold War is technically over. Some fascinating stuff there. Shoot us a message, let you know what you think about the show. And don't forget to share the show with your friend. Maybe you know someone who escaped a totalitarian regime like Soviet Union or Cuba or some other scary place. Or maybe you know someone who's interested in international politics or journalism or human rights. Just shoot them a link and let them know you're thinking about them and help the show grow. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Please keep staying safe. Love you all. Peace. This is my country, my country, my country.